Welcome from me, John Strickland, to Our Future Skies in partnership with AIG. In this podcast series, I'm talking with leaders from different parts of the airline industry, exploring a range of views on where it might be headed in the next 10 to 20 years. Well, the good news currently is the industry is making a really strong recovery from the COVID pandemic, but it still faces a host of other challenges, not least geopolitical problems, military conflicts, and certainly significant uncertainties in the global economic outlook. But of course, the real elephant in the room, as far as the airline industry is concerned, is the issue of sustainability. And that's a challenge uh, which doesn't have any easy answers. Now, in this episode, we're going to hear the perspectives of Pegasus Airlines, a leading Turkish low-cost carrier, And I'm not only interested to learn how they think the airline business will be affected by these and future challenges, but I'm very pleased that today's guest is one of the few women leaders globally in the airline industry, and that's the airline CEO, Gulitz Ozturk. Now, Gulitz began her career at Turkish Airlines in 1990, where she held a number of key posts. She joined Pegasus in 2005, heading up the launch of scheduled flights, and then she became CCO, which is where our paths first crossed, actually. And in May 2022, she took the hot seat, becoming CEO of the airline, and in fact, the first female leader of a Turkish airline, and in fact, one of the very few female leaders worldwide. So, Gulitz, welcome. I'm delighted to have you as my guest on Our Future Skies. Thank you, John. I'm very happy to be here with you. Great. Well, I think we've been talking uh, at least t- 10 years. So I know a bit about exactly. Pegasus. And, and even in that time, I've seen how the airline's grown. But it's an airline with a, a long history, uh, going back more than 30 years. It's grown from small beginnings to today, operating a fleet of around about 100 aircraft. And you've got an increasingly diverse network approaching 50 countries, I think about 130 destinations. And I like what you say in some of your uh, financial material. You say, we didn't start aviation in Turkey, but we transformed it. So Gulitz, can you fill us in on a few of the details about where Pegasus is today? Thank you, John. That's really, I think, the most explanatory uh, sentence uh, which for, for Pegasus. So you catched it very rightly. But you know us, I mean, you know me also uh, for a long time, for more than 10 years, you're right. Exactly. We did not start the aviation because we have uh, started this uh, model, this scheduled business in 2005 in Turkey. So it's now 18 years this year that uh, we have started the low-cost business model in Turkey. We were the first and we're still the only one who is serving uh, under this model. However, Pegasus is established already in 1990s. So it was a charter company until 2005. And after it's bought by Esas Holding, which is a well-known uh, holding company in Turkey, uh, we had gone through a transformation, actually, uh, process. So at that time, I joined the company and we had adopted the low-cost business model with some tweaks which would fit to the Turkish market, to the Middle Eastern market, to our domestic market with some tweaks. We were flying 14 aircraft at that time when we first started. And uh, now we're running 99 aircraft. If it wasn't COVID for two years, we would be celebrating our 100 aircraft three years back. However, we have uh, as all the airline uh, industry. Of course, this model was not was very well known in Europe, in the US, in the Western uh, world. But for Turkey, it was very new. And it was a challenge at that time. 
to start and no frills, a different set of products, airline business, because all the people were used to have a different type of uh, uh, flying. However, they were, they, it was very uh, luxurious. So it was, it wasn't affordable to fly. What Pegasus actually done for Turkey is that we have managed uh, youngsters, young people, uh, most of the population uh, to start flying. And this has changed whole aviation industry in Turkey. And this has changed the lives of the people. This is, for example, I flew when I was 20 years old. I was living in Istanbul. I'm graduated from, from a very well-known university in, in Turkey. But still, it was so luxurious mode of travel. So at that time, we thought that this business model with a population of right now 82 million people in Turkey and road transport takes about more than 24 hours from west to east is definitely needed. And then the principles of it, we were successful to communicate how this model uh, works, what does it mean flying under a low-cost, low-fare model, and it, ha- it has been received very well, uh, both by the Turkish customers and also uh, globally, because it was a domestic carrier when we first started. Now Pegasus is an international airline. We're flying to 49 countries, 129 destinations, and most of it, like around 100 destinations, are in Europe, Middle East, the CIS countries. So it has a wide a network in the internationally, I mean, and even after COVID, last year was also very successful because we had a success. Maybe we will talk about this later on, but we had a successful exit as Pegasus Airlines last year in terms of both operational metrics and the financial metrics. Well, you've covered a lot of the points there, Gullis, many of which I want to come back to. And let's start uh, with the last one first. Uh, and just just briefly, uh, because we're, we're not uh, primarily numbers focused uh, today, uh, you did, as you said, have a very good year. I believe it was your strongest year ever last year, which coming out of COVID is particularly exceptional. Exactly, it was. Because before COVID, 2019 was a record high year for us. So uh, we had actually that record high year uh, for Pegasus, and also we were the highest EBITDA margin generating airline in 2019 also. And then after COVID, by 2022, we have repeated this. And in terms of, as I said, uh, operational profitability margin, we were the highest operational uh, profitable airline uh, globally last year. So that was a success, really, and put the, of course, our target for the coming years to a different threshold right now. Well, congratulations on that extremely strong performance, Gullitz, as you said, at a global level, not not uh, simply yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, in a European yeah. sense. Uh, now, you mentioned you have evolved to become a low-cost airline with tweaks, and indeed low-cost airlines tend to be leaders in the market in, in many parts of the world. Just turning more widely to the future of the industry, how do you see the industry developing as we go ahead, say, the next 10 or 20 years, in terms of uh, the mix of airlines? What kind of business models do you think are going to lead, and are there any you think may even fall away or disappear? John, I think we have, since 10 years, we're, uh, when we chat and when we talk, 
uh, we're discussing this and uh, <laughs> you you have also I know that you have uh, very uh, good uh, forecasts about this but maybe covid had also justified uh, what we were uh, thinking we know that airline business is a highly uh, costly uh, business uh, that's for sure and also impacted by many many uh, different parameters it's not only like it's not only the fuel costs it's sometimes political tensions sometimes a, a kind of a, a social uh, problems in some countries or let's say like earthquakes which we have unfortunately experienced at the beginning of this year or covid a virus issue so Airline business is so fragile in terms of these uh, parameters uh, impacting that the airlines should be well controlling their costs and cash. That's, I may say, the basic fundamentals. It's not only belonging to a certain business model. It shouldn't mm-hmm. belong to a certain business model, like low-cost business model. And the, yes, we as a low-cost business model operators we're well on this. We know the uh, principles. We know it's in our DNA. So the running the airline under this model needs you to be agile, needs you to be relentlessly focusing on costs, and also needs you to be adapting to new conditions. So I see the aviation world, especially during what, what we have seen some very major airlines facing difficulties, financial difficulties, or some small airlines consolidating or closing down the airline, unfortunately. Uh, What we have seen is this. The crises are not managed during the difficult times, actually, during the time when it's crisis. Those crises in the aviation business is actually managed in the successful times. I mean, you should be fit. You should be fit like a human being during your health times so that you can strengthen your immune system and face all those challenging, tough days when you are fit enough. So we are following a strategy of what we say four C's. One is cast. The other one is cast management, which is cost per available seat kilometer. So you should be, even when you are have you, when you are on your shiny days, you should be after your effective cost management and efficiency. It should be an efficiency issue because if it is an efficiency issue in good times and in bad times, efficiency is efficiency. And then cash is very critical. And then third one is effective capacity management. What it means is cash generating flights, where to fly, how long to fly, utilization, high utilization. And the fourth one is customer. So we're following this strategy. What I see on the aviation world, most of the airlines, I mean, the airlines, they will all, in terms of principles, in terms of product portfolio, yeah, it may be, it may, uh, product portfolio may differ. However, these principles should be adopted by the aviation world. And we are in front of us now, this sustainability, the environmental issues, where it may add up more costs on on the airline side, which therefore we should have our muscles strong enough so that we keep growing. I'm sure aviation will grow. 
Because aviation is an essential, I mean, traveling is an essential need. But however, you should be strong, financially strong in this business. And you should keep yourself financially strong, operationally efficient. Otherwise, consolidation or let's say MNAs, these are inevitable, of course. Well, that, that was the question I wanted to ask you, actually, Gullis. I mean, I, I like where you put it about it, uh, the human analogy of keeping fit and keeping fit through the good times as well as the bad, not indeed waiting for the bad to do something about it. Exactly. But do you think there will be much more consolidation in the arena where you're operating? We we, we have uh, we've seen that to its largest extent in the USA, where there's about yeah. five or six large airlines in the US in the European market. Uh, there are also probably uh, five or six um, pan-continental airlines, but maybe less so in other, other parts of the world. Uh, uh, what is your sort of uh, sense of that? In some parts of the Euro Middle East, of course, the uh, governments aided, uh, governments aided. Mm -hmm. Uh, helped uh, for the airlines, so that made maybe a difference. However, I mean, this is a kind of a certain period of time. So what we see is after COVID, now we have seen last year a strong travel demand, isn't it? Yes, in many of the parts of the uh, globally, the demand was very strong because people were really bored, and closed at homes for two years. So we had a strong demand. That's fine. But when we look at the aviation history, looking back, let's say 20, 25 years, this sector has always different type of crisis within four or five years of time. So there is no 10 years, for example, for the aviation industry that has not seen any kind of crisis. Either it's a fuel crisis, as I described, uh, a minute ago, or a political crisis, or an economic crisis, it happens. So for that reason, I'm saying that for another upcoming one, which we do not like to see anymore after COVID, because it was a, a, a very harsh one, but we may see. So the airlines in Europe, in Middle East, if actually uh, right now they may be getting the benefit of the strong demand, yields are stronger, so they may, but the costs on the other side are increasing and the inflation, inflationary pressures are there on top of us in all the countries, which we haven't seen before that much high. So I think I cannot, I mean, uh, name, uh, of course, but if it goes like this and if these principles are not uh, focused by the airlines and they are not, uh, let's say, seen as a part of their daily operations as a part of their daily it's not a strategy only i mean it should be in the execution that it may end up both in europe and middle east with some consolidations yes the small ones being consolidated yeah certainly as you say the industry is known for its crises and you talked optimistically about demand I mean, tell us uh, Gulitz, uh, a bit about your thoughts about future customers I and mean, tell us a in a way, lead in by talking about the kind of customers you have now and are they the same kind of customers that you expect to have in the future? Uh, customers have already changed after COVID, John. We had two researches and uh, the, the and results of those researches shows that they like to travel. Mm -hmm. And we did the first one during COVID times. Like it was a year, I think, uh, the 
yes, a year uh, has passed with COVID. We had the first research. And there in that research, we have seen that most of the people will come back and travel. They said so. They will travel. Uh, and then the second, uh, with the second research, we have seen that, yes, they are really eager to travel. But the basic changes in the customers' expectations was the first one was the flexibility. They wanted flexibility while traveling because they have seen it during COVID times. They had their tickets. Some of the airlines did not pay back or did not reissue their tickets. Their all travel plans are canceled. So they want to be actually uh, prepared for such a thing because they have, it's very recent in their memories, which they have experienced at the start of the COVID. So they want flexibility. And for example, when we heard this, we had very fast developed a product which would uh, give flexibility while buying their tickets and named it as Flex, for example, for our customers. And there was a huge interest for that product. That product was there with us before COVID. The content was different and it wasn't sold that much. Now, so the customer expectation and behavior has changed. The second one is a, they want to travel with minimum contact, which they have said, with minimum contact of people. So as of 2018, we have started investing in technology, investing in digital solutions at the airport. So we had uh, launched and invested more in our self-service kiosks at our hubs, for example. They don't want any friction. They don't want to see anyone. They want digital solutions. Now, these were the behavior, and there are some also sustainability issues. They want the brands to be, uh, let's say, well aware of what the environmental impact they are creating. These were what we have seen. Now, from now on, I think with the younger generations, what will happen? Yes, they will be, which we see that they have more to say about the world itself, the climate, the environment. So they are more sensitive to this. So we, as the aviation sector, although we are like a scapegoat because we are only creating 2% of carbon emissions, still we have put, for example, our the aviation industry as a whole, their own targets for the coming years, 2030, 2050, net zero. This is, this is critical for the new generations. The second one, which I see is it's not enough to have digital solutions or to buy tickets through apps, for example. They want everything so easy, so fast, so digital. So they don't want to wait. They don't want to be asked if they know if, I mean, the customers will think more and now think, if you know me, then don't ask me. <laughs> I mean, just use the information you have. Of course, as long as I got the consent from them. And then I don't have to uh, give more information to you. You should be knowing. So having more easier solutions at the airport, offline, I mean, or online. These are critical, I think, for our customers. I think this is, in a way, it is true for many of the sectors. Mm -hmm. Because customer is the customer, same customer, young generations, young generations. However... For the aviation world, especially the airport experience, has more pain points than other uh, sectors' uh, physical, uh, let's say, experiences. 
So, for example, as Pegasus, we are also focusing on our customer experience at the airports right now, where we invest uh, in the technology so that our customers, if there are any pain points, we want to have to solve them, or our customers have more easy and digital uh, services from us with less frictions. It's interesting what you're saying. It sounds to me that um, young people, they do want to travel. So there's optimism for the future. As you said, aviation will grow, but they want to travel responsibly. They are tech savvy because they've been born in this world of digital, which you and I have had to learn. In fact, I think I'm still learning it every day. Um, so that's positive. And I was going to ask you about technology because you know it's evolving rapidly. Uh, we're all using phones and apps, but we've heard a lot of discussion recently, in some ways, at least for somebody like myself, it could be quite terrifying about the impact of AI. Is AI going to replace people? And given what you were saying there, Gull, it's about young people wanting the airline to use the information it's already got. And yet being a service industry, but also, as you said, having pain points, particularly in the airport side of things, where does that take us? Because are we still going to need talented people to come into this industry uh, or are we going to replace them all by technology? That's a big question. That's a big question. Right. But uh, personally, I think I mean, the aviation world is actually maybe for the young people is promising because the airline business, John, you know very well, that is an optimization and planning process in total. Whichever discipline in an airline you may look at, there is an optimization and planning opportunities, processes, and it should be, you should base all your initiatives and actions on top of it if you want to run the airline operationally and financially strong because the margins are narrow at the airline business. So optimization is needed. Now, AI is doing this. Mm -hmm. But for AI to, I mean, maybe the what you do, the responsibility area may change. However, the talented people to run those, I, I mean, the AI is there, okay, it's doing the maybe the standard, for example, reporting mm -hmm. processes. But then the talented people are needed to apply different type of those scenarios are there. But for for doing it at the right time, at the uh, to the right customers, you need a kind of a, a decision-making process, which is a human decision-making process at the end. So I, I, I personally believe AI will make our lives, especially talented people, easier because it will be a kind of a supportive, uh, let's say, assistant to them. Huh, some standard works will not be there anymore. If you are a person who is reporting, who is preparing reports only, for example, and having no any kind of analysis on, on top of it, then AI may do it. That's for sure. But there are many areas on the airline world where we can use AI, where we can use machine learning. And this brings efficiency also to the airline business. However, this doesn't mean that the, the airlines will not need talented people. I, they may need more talented people than any other sector. Well, that's uh, that's good to hear for any young people listening in. Uh, uh, 
there will be those opportunities. And you talked about the planning process, and you and I both share some of that background in network yeah. planning, deciding where planes should fly and how to price those seats. Uh, tell us a bit about your thoughts about the future uh, shape of your network as Pegasus, because I, I'm interested that you in Turkey are sitting between Europe and Asia. So you're not only looking in one direction or the other, you're looking in both. And if I see how you're growing, you know, a lot of your growth is pointing east. Does that tell us anything about your perceptions of the, the shape of future global development and where you need to tap into? Exactly. We, we, when we first started, we first started to establish a network in Europe on the western side. When we first started in 2007 for the international operations, we started flying domestically in 2005. And then the first international flight uh, was on December 2006. So 2007 was the first year for us, 11 years back, when we first started our international operations. Now, there's a huge Turkish population living in Europe. And this was a pipeline. And we want to we establish a pipeline from Europe to Turkey because we had that type of ethnic traffic there. So we first started with European destinations and we have now a wide uh, European network. However, Istanbul, as you rightly mentioned, is so well located that you have to have the competitive advantage of this location of Istanbul. So combining East and West is adding an incremental traffic to us. This was, a, for example, a tweak which we have made, as I said, to order the LCC model. Because there, you know, LCC model emphasizes that you have to be point to point because it, a connecting traffic adds complication to your uh, operations. Hmm. It's not as simple as a point to point traffic. That's true. But if you put the principles right and properly in advance and give you have your red lines uh, for the operations when you are carrying connecting traffic, then for us, for example, it is actually was essential that we should grab this advantage. So uh, we have on our international flights right now, uh, 32% of our traffic is uh, connecting traffic. So for this reason, and having this location, and as we our main hub is Istanbul, and then after we have uh, established a basis on our European network, we started growing on the eastern side, Middle East, and then the CIS countries, North Africa. These were the these are the still these are the strategical uh, areas where we want to grow because as we add another destination to our network, you add one destination, but you know the connections are increasing, it's not by one destination. It's like you add one destination, but it gives connection to 25, 30 different European destinations. So the incremental effect uh, with a multiplier impact is increasing. And we want to in also increase our frequencies on the Eastern side. Uh, and if we bring a balance on our Eastern and Western network, then uh, the, uh, the load factor impact of it and the revenue impact of it will increase. That's what we are actually trying and aiming to do. The uh, air services agreements are not as liberal as Europe, European countries. 
So uh, we're working together with our civil aviation. And up until now, uh, we managed to uh, have uh, the type of uh, traffic rights from those countries in the Eastern uh, world. Now, we want to also grow more on our uh, CIS countries, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, for example. And also, uh, we want to fly more frequencies to, uh, to, to Middle East in the coming years. Very interesting, Gullitz. And your aircraft fleet, you just uh, almost complete a transition from a Boeing fleet to an Airbus fleet, uh, Airbus A320, 321 NEO aircraft. Now, Airbus has versions of the, particularly the A321 available now uh, for listeners with the name of LR Long Range or XLR Extra Long Range. Do you think that is something you may tap into as you take aircraft uh, deliveries in the future that may allow you to, again, change the uh, the length of journey you do, going to some places that are further away than you've uh, been able to do currently. John, we uh, worked on that before COVID even, this XLR, the long range for uh, 321, because we are receiving 321s uh, now. I mean, uh, mm -hmm. from now on, from this, for example, from today, within three years, we will receive another 48 Airbus 321s. We will add another 48 321s to our fleet and we checked the range but as we are in Istanbul and um, the range is different than the European countries that XLR uh, does not bring incrementally important destinations to our network vis-a-vis -vis the, the, the cost of it because then you sh it, it is a different type you should have a sub fleet for that type it again brings some complications into your uh, fleet management but as a result you don't see much any destinations mm -hmm. adding uh, into our network because we are in Istanbul and within six hours we can cover many of the destinations we can even fly to India for example from here to India with Airbus 320 NEOS even 321 NEOS even yes there are some limitations on the way back uh, from uh, India to, to Istanbul, so we can carry less passengers on board. But at the end, it, even if you look look into it, it may be feasible at the end. We may have a stopover or so. So it was before COVID when we worked and uh, on the feasibility of it, and it uh, doesn't seem feasible for us. So we will continue receiving Airbus 321 NEOS for the coming uh, years. You know, you remember our 100 aircraft order uh, in two, uh, 2012. So we are still receiving that order. And we added another 14 aircraft during COVID. So it's in total now 114. Most of them are received. 48 of them will be received within the three years of time. And good. It's just turning uh, to, to yourself personally and your, your experience career-wise. Uh, you became CEO uh, in 2022, and we, we're gradually now seeing more women uh, reaching senior positions in the industry, but it's way out of line with the male-dominated uh, uh, characteristics which the industry has seen for a long time. Just tell me something about your perspectives on this, because you are the shiny example of what can be done and what should should be done. Thank you, John. It's and Being an example like this is, at the same time, putting a, a huge responsibility on my shoulders that I have to go through this uh, position successfully so that I, 
I will become a uh, successful role model for the uh, female professionals after me. So it's, I really feel very responsible also on this. Now, this sector is a male-dominated sector, that's for sure. And this is what I have lived for about 30 years because it's now over 30 years that I'm in this sector, in this business. Yes, it is male-dominated. Why? Because there are so many technical roles in the industry. I mean, in an airline, for example, the technical department, pilots, these were all seen or ground operations. For many years, these roles were all assigned to a gender, a male gender. That's why, I mean, the pool is full of male professionals. And then, of course, uh, when you go up the career-wise, when you go up the stairs, and then if, because there are more males joining to the company and working on those technical roles, then the management level is always is more dominated by the man in the industry. And what I did myself, I have never seen being a woman as a disadvantage. I may experience some disadvantages. I, I, I wasn't aware at that time. I mean, like 10 years back, 15 years back, it was not so much in my radar that I, I, AI, is it a disadvantage for me that because I'm woman, this is what I have seen right now as a behavior, for example. Instead, I actually tried to empower myself, try to develop myself, and so that I would be prepared to get more responsibility. It wasn't, John, for me, like, I wasn't having such kind of ambition that I will become a CEO at the end of my career. My target was always, my aim was always to expand my responsibility area. If I do something, if there's any kind of a new unit, for example, or new responsibility popping up, I was the one who is asking for it. Okay, I may do it. So let's grow my responsibility area so that I learn more, so that I develop more. I, in 2018, when I was chief commercial officer, for example, for about 10, uh, eight years, I went to Columbia Business, Columbia University for advanced management program, for example. Most of my colleagues or my friends outside, they said, I mean, you're in this business for about 25 years. Why going there again and being a student again? And so No, but I see this uh, personally, a kind of enrichment of myself and also for my team, for the company. So I'm my advice to uh, female professionals, to the professionals in this industry is this. They should have confidence in themselves. Because really, for example, when I took over this position, John, uh, as the CEO, uh, when they said congratulating me, saying that you are the first female CEO. I mean, I thought, I mean, why I'm called female CEO? I mean, they are not called male CEOs. So why <laughs> they're calling me female CEO? I wasn't happy with that. Then I thought, then I thought, and I said that, okay, Gilles, this is a, a fantastic opportunity to be a role model. Because if other uh, female professionals, if they see me and say that, if I can enable them, saying that, oh, if Gulis can do this, I can do this. So this is, I feel myself as an enabler here. This is what I did. I developed myself. I tried to empower myself. 
And I also had the confidence and had a strong team, by the way. I have a strong team. So I believe in a strong teamwork. You know me, John. I really believe in that. So with it, with this, so there is no female, male, actually, uh, differentiation. If you are the right person for the right job, you will be there. For the corp, at the corporate level, what we have to do, we have to create this climate in the companies. We have to create these opportunities. It's not a positive differentiation. I'm not after for it, but I'm after for giving equal opportunities. If needed, we should establish some quotas for the uh, female representation so that this industry will have more diversity and this will foster productivity, creativity, at the end, profitability. This is what I think. It's very motivating to hear that, Gulitz, and I'm sure it will be well received by many other women who are in the industry or thinking to come into the industry. And I guess it ties in with the wider topic of equity and inclusion. We're a global airline industry with many people of different colours, religions, outlooks on life, and the wider the the breadth, I guess, uh, the more we can benefit. Exactly, because we are all, for example, as Pegasus, we are a local brand, isn't it? Yes. But we are doing a global business because we are flying 49 different countries, 49 different citizens, 49 different countries, citizens are flying with us. We are exposed to them. I mean, if they don't fly, they don't fly. But we are exposing ourselves to them. So how come this whole industry is doing the same business? So this diversity issue is right fit for the aviation industry. Now, the other challenge that we talked about uh, at the beginning, Gulitz, uh, uh, is, of course, for one of the uh, environmental and sustainability agenda. It's a really big challenge for the industry. Is it something which is very high profile in Turkey as a whole? Is the public uh, conscious of this and, and, and asking questions to you as a business? Exactly. Consciousness in, in Turkey, if you ask me, let's say, five, six years ago, I may not be so seeing this so positive because I see this consciousness as a positive stance, by the way. But after COVID, COVID also affected, had changed people's perceptions, I believe. So in Turkey, also consciousness is increasing now for the climate issues, for the environmental issues, because at the end, it's like for the next generations, you're living this planet for the next generations. And this is also by the younger generations in Turkey is asked to us also it's asked by the financially even when you have you're exposed uh, in the reportings for example it is it has an impact on your uh, value so this is also uh, getting more and more a hot topic uh, in Turkey also as Pegasus we of course being an airline uh, as I said uh, normally the aviation industry only has the like 2% of what is uh, global greenhouse gas emissions is responsible for only 2%. However, even it is like 2% only, why I'm saying only? Because road transportation has a multiple fold impact. Uh, Cement industry accounts for 8% of global greenhouse emissions. But despite that, our sector puts a lot of efforts to improve and uh, puts those initiatives for the 2050 
to reach uh, net zero emission, ICAO and IATA. But we've seen some airlines now being accused of greenwashing. Um, so do, do you think the industry is doing enough to, one, demonstrate that it is serious and yeah. exp- express adequately why uh, it is so essential as part of uh, humanity? The industry, of course, there are many stakeholders. I mean, it's not the airlines only. It's a kind of an ecosystem where we should be, including the governments, where we should uh, spend efforts, more efforts to reach net zero by 2050. Is it reachable? Yes, if we can really devote the resources, but by all the stakeholders, I mean, we can. Here, the important part is the jet fuel, because for airlines, the carbon footprint is mainly shaped by the jet fuel burn, jet fuel burn. This is what we know, right? We need to uh, decarbonize this energy source. Now, for this, yes, airlines are growing, but uh, the aircraft models are also changing. For example, our Airbus 321s are both very efficient in terms of fuel burn, and also carbon emissions, because between 15 to 20% less fuel consuming. Uh, so when you we're investing in this type of uh, new generation aircraft, so we are trying to decrease at the source these carbon emissions. Now, the aviation industry, the aircraft producers, they are working on uh, different uh, scenarios. Hydrogen is another alternative, for example which may take time, yes. I see the critical point is the sustainable aviation fuel production. If we can produce SAF, let's say enough uh, for the coming years for the airlines, then uh, both the supply will be there. Plus it's very expensive right now. We are using on our some of our domestic flights, SAF fuel, but it's really very expensive and it's not economical. So if we produce more, it will be affordable also at, uh, uh, like this. Then with SAF, we can reach to our uh, targets where we on the interim target and the long-term target. But for that, fuel producers and governments, we should be acting together. There should be incentivizing of SAF production so the companies... We should be there, ready to use, give some plans, how much, which airlines, which geography. Otherwise, it's not easy, of course. I mean, there should be such kind of uh, structured initiatives taken uh, going forward to reach 2050 net zero carbon uh, emission. I guess, as you say, it's it's a partnership approach. Uh, Heavy lifting has got to be shared, uh, not only by airlines, but uh, across industry and governments. And just briefly touching on governments, we're seeing some quite strong negative intervention in aviation in a number of Western European countries. Uh, As we talk, there's a lot of legal activity going on Mm -hmm. about uh, capacity at Amsterdam, Schiphol Airport, where the government actually wanted to permanently reduce capacity. There's been a lot of talk about the French government restricting a certain number of domestic flights, and indeed whether that is simply more a a case of greenwashing itself. Uh, Do you have concerns about the different approaches of governments? Do you, do you think this is be- going to become a widespread issue? Or do you think Europe, Western Europe, may become 
out of sync with governments in other parts of the world who see the benefits, the necessity of a, a strong and developing aviation industry? I believe uh, during COVID times we have seen this. We need a kind of a coordinated approach also from the governments for the aviation industry because it's the aviation industry is at the end. The competitive landscape is not locally established. I mean, we are in a landscape where we have flights to many countries and each airline is not competing maybe on the same city pairs, but at the end, they are flying to different geographies, different countries, from different airports to those countries. This type of coordination if is not there. For example, during COVID, all the airlines, in terms of those limitations, travel bans and everything, were changing so frequently and putting so much pressure on the airlines that at the end, customers are facing all those difficulties. Now, this was a crisis time of period. When we have exited the COVID, the lesson, I think for me, for example, the significant one, the most important lesson, which we have to take from COVID, was definitely a more consolidated approach uh, with the governments, with the authorities, with the stakeholders in the industry. Now, this should be the same again, because putting such kind of pressures on the airlines only and on some parts of the countries, some countries are doing this, some others are not doing it, then this landscape is not giving the same uh, equal opportunities to all the airlines. Of course, each specific country may have their own uh, issues to tackle but when once when one country puts such kind of a pressure on the airline, then it follows by the other countries, because then the other countries are also evaluating it, or the governments are evaluating it, and they they also gives a kind of an answer back. So and it it goes up, and in the sector, when we th- think of all the stakeholders of this industry, then it's vis-a-vis the customer, the airlines are there to face this or the cost of it. Again, the airlines are facing the cost of it. So that's why I'm just saying, just putting pressures or putting such kind of limitations will not help because travel should grow, John. Travel should grow, why? Because it brings more social, cultural improvement to the countries. People like to travel and will travel. In terms of education, in terms of health, we need uh, traveling. So we should solve this uh, with the root causes of it. That's why I'm saying SAF production, SAF production. SAF production is critical. And Gullis, as you say there, uh, travel is enriching. It is a, a way of bringing people together. So let me draw our conversation to a close by just asking you one final bit of reflection. We are at a sensitive time from a, a geopolitical perspective, a lot of things changing in the world. You could say the tectonic plates are, are shifting in the political and economic order in the world. And I'm interested 
in in your last few uh, reflections, Gul, is to find out how you see this and how you can navigate it from a company perspective. And what I think interests me in particular, we've touched on it already, is that you are in quite a unique position as sitting between Europe and Asia, looking both ways, seeing things developing, not from one perspective, but uh, everything overlapping. Does it give you a unique perspective? And would you say change in the world order is inevitable? Yes, exactly. We see this. What we see is actually these geopolitical tensions within different uh, geographies uh, of the world uh, as we, let's say, go uh, forward, which we think the technology is developing, humanity is improving. So actually, we are not expecting to see such things, right? What we are expecting is to have more improvements in terms of economic improvements, social improvement, technological developments. We're talking with AIs and so, but at the same time, we're talking about conflicts, we're talking about wars, we're talking about other types of tensions in many different parts of the of the world. These are really very sad and concerning for us and for the aviation industry uh, as a whole, because aviation industry is impacted more than any other uh, sector. But however, I mean, we see that these type of things do not eliminate, uh, again, the need uh, to travel. And actually, as long as people knows and travels and sees different cultures, different people from different countries, I mean, this brings them closer, actually. This is what I think, socially. And economic developments if economic development is there and aviation definitely fosters this, then this type of conflicts uh, where there is economic prosperity are we see are less, should be less, then that also, uh, aviation also has a role in it. So, I mean, this is what I see the aviation's role uh, with the other sectors, actually. Aviation is not simply carrying one person or the customers from one point to the other. It is actually fostering improvement, socially getting together, seeing different cultures, seeing also education-wise, getting people together. So this may also help in the future to have less conflicts for, with the younger generation, with the younger generation, maybe with the less conflict. But whatever happens, at the end, there will be always need to travel. Gullit, uh, I think that's a, a, an excellent philosophical point to to end on. It's really been a, a pleasure to talk with you today, to share your vision and your reflections uh, for the future of Pegasus, a growing airline. So Gullit Ozturk, CEO of Pegasus, many thanks for your time. Thank you, John. Thanks to you for listening. And I hope we've provided you with some food for thought and enlightened you on the outlook of Pegasus. I'll be back soon with the next episode of Our Future Skies in partnership with AIG. But for now, from me, John Strickland, goodbye. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast series are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of American International Group, Inc. or its subsidiaries or affiliates. AIG. Any content provided by our speakers are of their opinion and are not intended to malign any religion, ethnic group, club, organization, company, individual, or anyone or anything. 
AIG makes no representations as to accuracy, completeness, correctness or validity of any information provided during this podcast series and will not be liable for any errors, omissions or delays in this information or any losses, injuries or damages arising from its use.